0: This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Elections and election influence operations in Europe and the difficulty of taming Fancy Bear. Some weekend reading. The Google Docs worm and dynamite phishing incident takes an odd but implausible turn. Snake malware seems poised to strike at Mac users. And there's a new product in the crime-as-a-service market. It's called Fatboy, it speaks Russian, and yes, it's ransomware. I'm Dave Bittner in Baltimore with your CyberWire summary for Friday, May 5th, 2017. French voters will elect their next president this weekend, and the election's final week has been roiled by accusations that Marine Le Pen's campaign colluded with Russia. Her opponent, Emmanuel Macron, currently holds a lead in the polls. Both candidates are, relatively speaking, outsiders. Macron says his organization experienced attempts to get at its emails and that these attempts were thwarted. In Germany, which will hold its federal elections on September 24th, the director of the domestic intelligence service BFE warns that their agency has seen a marked increase in Russian cyber espionage directed at influencing the elections. Think tanks associated with both major parties in Chancellor Merkel's coalition government have been targeted. In both France and Germany, as was the case in the US, Russia's GRU, Fancy Bear as it's come to be familiarly known, is the animal of interest." One might wonder then what effect Western countermeasures may have had on such Russian activity. Wired Magazine takes a look at what U.S. sanctions did to slow down election-focused Russian cyber-espionage and conclude that the sanctions accomplished essentially nothing. Fancy bear is prancing through Western networks clad in the barest fig leaf of plausible deniability. Brazen is what Wired calls fancy. According to New American Foundation analyst Peter Singer, that's because sanctions are effective when they hold something valuable at risk. What's valuable to Russian President Putin, Singer thinks, is concealment of oligarchical corruption and his own personal wealth from the Russian public. And sanctions are shrugged off because they haven't successfully exposed this. Those interested in the historical continuity of Cold War espionage and propaganda with current cyber and influence operations will find the National Security Archive's Cyber Vault highlights, just published by George Washington University, worth consulting. And it's all properly declassified and FOIA'd, so presumably safe for work. No WikiLeaks dodginess about it. It's the Cyber Vault, and that's not Vault 7. Another set of readings worth consulting may be found listed in Palo Alto's Cybersecurity Canon, their honor roll of books they think every cyber practitioner should consult and master. Every year, Palo Alto inducts a new class. We were at their gala in Washington last night. And the books and authors are well worth your attention. Check out the CyberWire Daily News Brief today for a full list. The Google Docs worm fishing campaign has taken a very odd turn. Many remarked when it first surfaced on its similarities to the tactics, techniques, and procedures used by Pawnstorm. You remember Pawnstorm, Trend Micro's name for what the other people call Fancy Bear, APT28, or the GRU. But attribution is notoriously difficult, and it won't be easy here either, because someone seems to be interested in muddying the waters. A person claiming to be a student at Coventry University says he was responsible for the episode and that it wasn't really an attack, just a test or a trial. A test of what or a trial of what isn't clear. Nor is it clear that the person claiming responsibility is particularly plausible himself. Bleeping Computer calls him some Twitter dude, and that's not an unfair characterization. This Twitter dude identifies himself as Eugene Popov. But Coventry University says they've never heard of any Eugene Popov, and that Eugene Popov doesn't appear to be one of their students. There are other grounds for skepticism, too. For one thing, the Twitter account, at Eugene Popov, was registered essentially simultaneously with the attacks. Maybe that's legitimate, but it certainly looks like a sign of track-covering disinformation. Nor does the address that registered the account look right, either. Finally, the account has a picture associated with it, as accounts do, and this picture is of another Popov entirely, a presumably innocent and uninvolved molecular biologist at the Russian Academy of Sciences Institute of Molecular Genetics. So no, the smart money is on Eugene Popov not being at all who he claims to be. His Twitter account now seems to be gone too, but while it was up, it identified him as a white-hat hacker. Few are convinced, but hey... Stranger things have happened. Whoever's behind the incident, observers think OAuth abuse likely to continue. Google still gets good marks for quick reaction and containment of the incident, but Motherboard makes note of the fact that people, including Google, were warned of the possibility of such dynamite phishing almost six years ago. Researcher Andre DeMar described it to an independent standard-setting body, the Internet Engineering Task Force, IETF, back in October 2011, and now his warnings seem to have come true. Snake malware, also known as Turla, Agent BTZ, or our favorite, Ouroboros, is back and getting an upgrade. Fox IT thinks it sees signs Snake is being prepared for use against macOS targets. The cyber espionage tool has been in use for about a decade, targeting embassies, government organizations, colleges, and universities, pharmaceutical companies, and various researchers. Much of its activity has been focused on Ukraine, but other targets in Europe and North America have also been hit. As is the custom, Snake poses as a legitimate app, and it's often spread by phishing emails. So Mac users, stay alert. Recorded Future describes Fatboy, a new ransomware-as-a-service offering on a Russian-language criminal forum. Customer support is available over Jabber, and there's even a user panel for customer engagement. High Tech Bridges' Ilya Kolichenko sees this as a foreseeable evolution of the crimeware black market toward commodification. The same thing, after all, happens in legitimate markets. Kolichenko says, quote, ransomware is about business, not about technology, end quote. And for now, at least, ransomware seems to be good business. For a bad business, that is. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And it's my pleasure to introduce a new partner to our podcast. I'd like to welcome Johannes Ulrich. He's the Dean of Research for the Sands Technology Institute, but many of you probably know him as the host of the ISC Stormcast podcast, another daily cybersecurity podcast. Johannes, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, we just want to start off by uh, by way of introduction. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, your background, and uh, what brought you to uh, cybersecurity podcasting.
1: Well, I originally actually started out uh, in physics, that's sort of where my career started, and that's uh, what I went for school uh, to school for, but uh, while doing physics, I also ended up doing a lot of computer work, and with that also, well, I guess today you would call it uh, in and of things, but remote control of experiments, that sort of got me into security in part because, well, You get into security by being breached at some point. Uh, For me, it was pretty simple. The home system I used uh, to remote control my experiments was actually abused by a spammer that uh, then sort of got me into firewall security and all of that uh, good stuff. One thing I realized back then was that uh, it's really hard for someone to understand when you're looking at your logs uh, what does it all mean? What's important? What's not important? So, back in 2000, I started a system called deshield.org that collects uh, firewalls uh, from volunteers around the world. And that later then, as I joined SANS, became the Internet Storm Center. And, well, um, what we're trying to do at the Internet Storm Center is to build a global information security sharing community. And uh, part of this, of course, is getting the word out, disseminating what's happening uh, today out on the Internet. And uh, that's sort of uh, where the daily podcast that I'm doing fits in.
0: All right. Well, it is uh, not unlike the CyberWire. It's a daily uh, briefing of cybersecurity news. Uh, we were joking before we uh, got on the air here that uh, you sort of cover the, uh, the morning drive time and we cover the afternoon drive time. So between the two of us, I think people uh, really have all their uh, their cybersecurity news covered for the day.
1: Right. Uh, my goal is to make you sound smarter when you arrive in the office in the morning. So if you listen uh, to the podcast in the morning, you get sort of the lowdown on the technical issues that happened. A little bit different from the CyberWire, that really covers more of the politics and business also around security, uh, which is also very important. I try to focus a little bit more on the nitty-gritty technical details.
0: Yeah, it's a great show. For those of you who haven't checked it out, it's the Stormcast podcast. And uh, Johannes Ulrich, we're uh, real happy to have you join us here on the Cyberwire. We'll talk to you soon. Struggling to secure on prem apps with modern identity? Don't worry, you're not alone. He and Timothy Gallo are co-authors of the book Ransomware, Defending Against Digital Extortion. Alan Liska has worked as both a security practitioner and an ethical hacker.
2: Tim and I both work with a lot of different types of customers. What we were seeing very early on is that they were really concerned about ransomware But we hadn't seen, and this is late 2015, early 2016, we hadn't seen as much of a response from the security community. There were a lot of blog posts and things like that, but our customers were really feeling like their vendors were letting them down. And we realized, well there's nobody that's really offering a lot of advice on what you need to do in order to protect yourself from ransomware if you're a corporation. So we we kind of got together and said, you know, we should write a book on this because you know, we're giving out a lot of the same practical advice over and over again and yeah, if we can sort of take what we've been telling people ad hoc and create a more formalized version of it, then I think we'd have something that would be useful to a whole lot of people. The first three publishers we reached out to disagreed with us completely. None of them had any interest at all in the book. And then we submitted it to O'Reilly and within 30 minutes, we had a callback from our O'Reilly editor saying, yes, this is a great idea. We really want to do this.
0: What is it about ransomware that makes it uh, a little tougher to for people to to wrap their arms around?
2: I think it's kind of strange. Yeah, you know, there's the the, the Ponemon study that's done repeatedly that says that you know most breaches go undetected for I, I think it's about 150 days right now. And so when you think of a breach, especially in a corporation. Most of the time, the breach itself doesn't disrupt business operations. So you're breached. Data is leaving your network for months, possibly being undetected. But the day-to-day operations of the business go on. It's only... After it's discovered and, you know, an and incident response kicks in and, and so on, then maybe some business operations are, are disrupted. Ransomware disrupts immediately. You know immediately that something bad happened in your organization um, and there's an immediate cost. Right. There may be a cost afterwards if there if, if it's discovered that you had a breach, especially if you were liable for something that happened, um, you know, if, if, if you were found to be negligent. But there's an immediate cost to ransomware. And so I think that's why it stays on the mind of so many people is because it's, it's an attack that is very tangible to those organizations.
0: Take me through uh, some of the highlights of the book. What are some of the things that you all cover?
2: We start with the history of ransomware, and then we dive into kind of um, why, you know, the economics of ransomware, why ransomware makes sense from the point of view of the bad guy. Uh, You know, a lot of people don't think about that, but, you know, there are, there are, Organizations, in some cases, professional organizations that are behind these ransomware campaigns. So, understanding why why they uh, are doing what they're doing and and you know why it's profitable for them to do this, um, we carve out a chapter to discuss whether or not you should pay the ransomware and and despite our best efforts it's not just one page with the word no written in 96 point font (laughs) um you know it's more of a nuanced discussion around that and then the bulk of the book is what can you as an organization do to protect yourself uh against ransomware what are some steps that you can do both both from a, a practical perspective, here's some things that we can secure, and from an educational perspective, how can we know what's going on? How can we educate our users? And then we highlight some of the different types of ransomware and some of the biggest ransomware campaigns that, that, that are currently out there to give people a feel for the different approaches the ransomware authors are taking.
0: While you all were doing the research for the book, was there anything that, uh, that caught your eye, anything that surprised you?
2: I think the biggest thing that caught our eye, and, and Tim and I have been uh, involved in, in in the InfoSec world for a very long time, and so we're aware of how bad guys work and how organizations work to protect themselves and some of the limitations that, that they have in protection. Um, but we were really surprised at the professionalism of some of the uh, more advanced ransomware developers. You know, scheduled release cycles, patching their their, their software, uh, obviously operating uh, help desks, which I'm sure uh, you've seen out there. Those type of things that are really, um, re- really the signs of a professional organization and, and oftentimes working better than some you know, legitimate software companies do.
0: That's Alan Liska, co author, along with Timothy Gallo, of the book Ransomware Defending Against Digital Extortion. If you'd like to hear more about ransomware, there's an extended interview with Alan on the next episode of the Recorded Future Inside Threat Intelligence podcast, scheduled for release this coming Monday, May 8th. And that's the Cyberwire. We are proudly produced in Maryland by our talented team of editors and producers. I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.
1: Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at t Space Daily and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too.